Yo-ho, I'm Damien Roos. Today, Stages Power Meter Fail Rates, the latest on carbo loading and how to get your confidence back after a crash. You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your cycling questions answered. If you're new to the show, here's the format you ask about cycling, I answer. It's as simple as that. So let's get started with the first question. I had a pretty big crash earlier this year when I lost my front wheel. It slipped out on a damp road at 60 kilometers an hour and broke my arm in two places. I had my first race of the season this week and my anxiety went through the roof. We went through a corner that should have taken with little to no braking, yet I found myself taking it much slower than everybody else and needing to waste energy gaining positions to get back in the pack. I've been riding bunch rides and the like, which have been fine, but they don't replicate the same speed and urgency in tighter corners that racing brings. Is there any way that helps build confidence again other than just continuing racing? Well, the short answer is that it's going to take time for you to recover your confidence, months, even up to a year. Professionals, when they go down, they seem to have a knack to be able to bounce back and just go straight back into it. That's probably why they're professionals. Everybody else is kind of you have this thing kicking around in the back of your head. Am I going to crash again? So really it's going to take time and don't expect anything more from yourself. There is a funny saying though that says that confidence builds steadily until a sharp decline. And it seems like that is what has happened here. And the good news is that you can rebuild it again. And here are a few ideas to help you rebuild that confidence. The first thing is get off road, go mountain biking, going on the trails. You might come back feeling better about your road handling abilities. You might lean harder, get more playful with the bike, bunny hops and maneuvering in tight spaces, and just generally feel more confident letting the bike slide out or whatever it is. The big thing about this kind of riding is that if you fall, the stakes are way lower. And the idea is that you can dial in those when do I break, when do I let it ride handling skills in less stressful situations. And the same here goes for cyclocross. You can get out on a cyclocross bike or on a course on a mountain bike, whatever, and do the same thing. Rail those corners, let it slide out, make yourself fall over. Know that it's mostly safe and it's all mental going into these loose corners. And it is basically just practice of knowing how to handle these things. And that's slowly going to build your confidence up because you can fall, you can crash, and you can walk away from those learning something rather than actually breaking something like you did on the road. I have heard it mentioned that you can go to a parking lot and work on your cornering and other skills. Another idea is obviously to give it time and then recreate the situation and do it repeatedly. So hit this damp corner. It's probably not damp now, but hit the corner at 60 kilometers an hour or build up to 60 kilometers an hour. Put yourself in the same position. Relearn that feeling that you had before around that same corner so that when it comes to actually doing similar corners, you'll have the same mental approach to it and you hopefully won't be in that position where you get really intimidated by it. Another thing here is have confidence in your equipment. If it's not there, then it's really hard to be a good descender. Second, guessing yourself mechanically keeps the fear in you and makes you tentative. Make sure that your equipment is sound before hitting the road for every ride. Other general things here are bike fit. If your bike doesn't fit well and you're uncomfortable in the drops, you're probably going to be a really poor descender. Sometimes the right size rig is all it takes to turn someone around from being a terrible descender to at least an adequate one, not wasting energy. Tire size and tire pressure are also important here, but I I won't really touch too much on this. And the same with position and weight shift. This is kind of like learning how to re- 
enter these corners, learning where to put yourself so you do feel confident and knowing the proper way to enter a corner. I don't know whether you had that before, but rethinking this and just putting yourself in the position where you're relearning it will help you actually build confidence because you do hear lots of folks talk about counter steering, shifting their weight from side to side, weighting a certain pedal, etc. But you don't hear enough about the position on your bike aft and fore, fore and back. Most poor descenders are tentative descenders and most tentative descenders are pulling backwards and they're sitting up, pushing the bike out in front of them with their arms rather than pulling the weight right over the front wheel where it should be. And you want to almost put all of your weight over the front wheel and not the rear wheel. And this is a tough one for most people to grasp. As I've mentioned already, you can get a bit more adventurous off-road with either cyclocross or mountain biking and experiment with this at lower speeds on a softer ground. In the end, though, the best idea may be to just go for it. Do this at your own risk, though. Next question, coming back after time off. I want to read your thoughts on coming back after about two months off the bike. I feel completely out of form. My FTP before was around 310. I don't know how it is now. I have ridden so far two days and have not felt good. How would you start riding again and how would you start training again? At this time of year, it would be hard to find anyone who hasn't suffered about of something or other and has been forced to take time off work and training. A week is fine, maybe two. You can resume training relatively easily. Training plans don't cover months off the bike. How do you deal with being off for an extended period of time though? The main key to coming back is not going full steam ahead. It's easy with the motivation of not having ridden for a while to go hard at the start. Aim to take off 10% of your target FTP and time and build into it. It really varies according to each person how hard you should go back into training. Some can go straight back into the long weeks while others should take a much more delicate approach. You will know this about yourself, how, how much workload you can handle and how you bounce back from that and if you have the time to actually get in decent recovery. After a break, look back at your training data and identify what you can and can't handle in terms of volume and intensity. Where did you hit that lowest point? It's in your TSB, your negative TSB. Where did you get to? And sort of identify that and that will give you a bit of a guide when you're building back up. There is no hurry throughout the season though. Many riders start the season strong and finish weak. Decide when you want peak form and just build around it from here. Some important points to take into account though. Have fun while you're getting back into riding. Perhaps even forget about your Garmin or Strava. It will stop you comparing your times with older rides when you weren't on form. Likewise, try not to compare yourself with others. Thinking that you aren't on par with your mates is definitely detrimental at this stage in your training. Further on down the line, it provides you with the motivation you need, but right now it is not going to help. Ride with people who are usually slower than you are. You're guaranteed to have more than a few laughs with old friends. Take your bike off the beaten track and explore new places. Chances are there are roads to be explored that you otherwise would have just ignored. And if you tried to keep your average speed up or tried to go with a consistent power output. Increasing the intensity is one way you shouldn't increase the overload. As you know, you need to ramp up the volume by increasing it only by 10 to 15% a week. And this is a safe rate of increase. Watch out for pains and niggles. A pain somewhere that starts as small as an annoyance can turn into something bigger, especially if your body is not used to time off and experiences a rapid return to intense exercise. 
Set an objective. Having a clear vision of what's ahead makes planning much easier and helps avoid many of the mistakes already mentioned. Trying to catch up on lost sessions is silly. It's bound to lead to overtraining and fatigue. And I'll leave you with this thought. Fitness comes back quicker than you think. It's really important not to get demoralized. Think of it as a clean start and maybe try to incorporate some aspects of training that you previously had ignored. Next question, riding with earphones on long rides. I find that a good podcast or some music really helps the kilometers tick by faster or doing hard sessions with music helps motivate me. I often leave the house thinking twice about bringing my headphones and usually leave them at home. I'm worried about safety and what's actually legal. Well, cycling with headphones can be a really controversial topic and many are on the fence about it. I'm not. I'm a one ear kind of guy and I go out basically every ride when I'm on my own with a earphone and something on in them. But others feel that cutting out or at least restricting one of your five senses is irresponsible for you as a rider and for others around you. Others like our listener feel it really helps us to escape the monotony of a long ride and motivates us to do more. Let's first look at the reasons against wearing headphones. According to research, listening to music on headphones can reduce cyclist attention by around 10%. Why make what is already a relatively dangerous activity more dangerous? Modern day earphones can become more and more noise reducing, potentially blocking out hazards in the unlikely event of a truck or car needing to pull into the side of the road, you won't be able to hear it. You may lose focus by becoming more absorbed in the music than your actual surroundings. Apart from the worry of cars or vehicles, using earphones may cause problems when other riders pass you as they may startle you. It may be illegal. However, this can depend on country to country, state to state, or even city to city. It's illegal in Spain, France, Germany, Japan, to name a few. So check out your local laws. By using earphones, the sounds are being blocked out, such as your chain skipping, air escaping the tire, anything else that might hinder the bike's usability. And finally, riding a bike and being able to hear everything around you makes for a more complete, enjoyable experience for many. All the reasons in favor of wearing headphones. Much research actually tells us that cycling with earphones may not be as detrimental as it seems on the face of it all. Research has been conducted on urban cyclists and showed that they were just as aware of their surroundings, if not more so, than other transport users and focus on their surroundings more actively in order to decrease risk. Music can be considered a legal performance enhancing drug and can increase your endurance up to 15% while lowering your perception of effort by tricking your mind into feeling less tired during a workout and also help to encourage positive thoughts. Your hearing is much less important than your sight and cycling. Deaf people are permitted to ride just as much as those who can hear perfectly, something which doesn't go hand in hand with accidents. The fact is that motorists should be aware of bikers anyway, therefore it isn't up to the rider to know what's coming from behind. For us cyclists, and especially when training in winter, a ride alone can last up to five hours. More than likely, most of this time is spent on secondary roads with little to no traffic. So why wouldn't you have something that's going to distract us from the monotony of it all? And finally, not every rider has Metallica on full blast. You may use this time as educational listening time where you are able to disconnect from the rest of the world and listen to something you otherwise wouldn't have time to do. I know that's what I do. At the end of the day, the choice is yours to make. As for evidence, too few studies have been conducted that give definite evidence for either side of the argument. You can simply just decide against using them, which is simple. However, if you do decide to use them, 
there are some things that you can do. For example, use one earbud, pull out the bud that's on the side of the traffic. There are even companies that sell one ear sets or simply switch your audio output to mono. Ear experts recommend keeping volume to 60% of max, so try to keep it to a level where you can still hear outside surroundings. There are a number of rechargeable or battery-operated Bluetooth speakers, although I don't really recommend that because it's a bit clunky and you look like a nufty. You can use bone-conducting headphones. Consider using earphones only in designated cycling lanes or on roads with very little traffic. To wrap up here, I've covered off pretty much everything here, but there is the legal question which I kind of touched on. I want to just go back into it slightly because... I can't give you the advice of where you ride, the city, the state or whatever. So maybe it would be helpful for you to actually ask around other cyclists, bike shops or whatever to see what their knowledge of it is. And if not, then going to some type of law enforcement and asking them directly to see if it is legal. Because if that's one thing that's holding you back, then definitely strike that off the list because I get a lot from listening to music and podcasts and audiobooks when I'm riding. So I don't see why, if you make the decision to, you should have to worry about it any further if you take the precautions that I've got here. Next question, calibrating my smart trainer. After utilizing my smart trainer for a few weeks, I haven't managed to get a consistent feeling in each ride, as well as worrying about power inaccuracy. I try to maintain consistency ride to ride. I pump the tire up to the same PSI and apply the same pressure between the tire roller. For those of you who ride wheel-on smart trainers, what is your routine for calibrating the device? What software do you use? One of the best features of a smart trainer is the ability to provide power numbers. And when it comes to power, nothing is more important than accuracy. The reality of the power device world is that different devices will often display discrepancies in their readings. For example, an output of 20 watts with a power meter may equate to an output of 220 watts on a smart trainer. These two devices would have an offset of 20 watts at the level of output. With a smart trainer, the heart of power accuracy lies in calibration, and this calibration process is essentially important with smart trainers that have a tire-to-roller interface, also known as a wheel-on trainer. Wheel-on trainers need to be calibrated more than others. Each bike that is used on a trainer needs to be set up in a different way, as all use different rim depth, tires, etc., which all contribute to different rolling resistance. So keeping these variables consistent each time you get on the trainer is the best start. Cyclops recommends calibrating as often as possible to keep the numbers as accurate as possible, performing both a cold calibration and when warmed up, a hot calibration. There are some other things that may be useful when trying to keep numbers as accurate as possible though. For example, if at all possible, try to keep the room temperature consistent. People have reported changing temperatures, throwing calibration off, forcing them to do it time and time again. Periodically clean the tire and roller with a rag and some isoprol alcohol. After the alcohol evaporates, you'll have a nice sticky interface. Don't skip the 10 minute warm up prior to calibration. The few minutes of spinning ensures that the tire is warmed up and that any air in the fluid chamber has adjusted temperature. Try to keep the roll attention the same on each ride. And finally, try to use the same tire on each ride, preferably a dedicated turbo training tire. At the end of the day though, the truth is that the smart trainer calibration can be a pain in the ass. If you use software like Trainer Road, you can use Power Match. So Trainer Road sets the resistance, trusts the power reported by your power meter, and then adjusts trainer resistance as appropriate to get power reported power meter to be at the target. 
much more simple than all of the above. Question, carbo-loading, the myths and the reality. What does the science say regarding the proper protocol for carbohydrate loading before a goal endurance event or race? I thought that this was a great place in this answer to bring up the low-carb, high-fat wars. Because as of March 2016, we finally got some data. The publication of a study on the metabolism of fat-adapted ultra runners and triathletes marked the beginning of a new phase in the debate over whether it's possible or even preferable to compete as a high-level endurance athlete on a LCHF diet. FYI, the basic logic of the high-fat approach is simple. An average person can store about 2,500 calories of carbohydrates enough to last a couple of hours. In contrast, even the slimmest of athletes has something like 50,000 calories of fat ready and waiting. If by substituting on a high-fat diet, you can train the body to burn primarily fat rather than carbohydrate, then you'll never run out of fuel and you'll be freed from the need to suck down nausea-inducing quantities of gels and sports drinks. The results of this first study, published in March 2016, showed that the fat-adapted runners were able to burn fat twice as quickly as the non-fat-adapted control group. During a three-hour treadmill run at a moderate pace, they relied on fat for 88% of their energy compared with the 56% of the controls. That was the good news. The more puzzling finding was that the fat-adapted runners still seemed to consume glycogen, the form in which the muscles store carbohydrate, at exactly the same rate as the non-fat-adapted runners, which raises the question, if you're burning the same amount of carbohydrate, do you really have an advantage? Actual endurance performance was not measured in the study, but if you look at an ex-Tour de France rider like Dave Zabriskie, a LCHF convert, Zabriskie says that his high-fat experiment was interesting, but hardly ergogenic. For long, easy training, it's good. For day-after-day racing like the Tour, you have to eat the carbs. To add to the earlier study, in May 2017, research from Mary McKillop Institute for Health and Research at the Australian Catholic University and the Australian Institute of Sport revealed that a high-fat, low-carb diet can actually impair the performance of elite athletes. The study was done over three weeks with race walkers, the perfect sport to test the theory because of their steady output over a long period of time and no sprinting is allowed. A crucial finding for the competitive athletes and sports scientists, the study not only demonstrated how carbohydrates can improve exercise performance, it revealed that a LCHF diet can cause increased oxygen demand during exercise, reducing the efficiency by which athletes transfer metabolic power to mechanical power. This study makes it clear that the LCHF diet can increase the muscle's ability to use fat as a fuel source, but there is a lack of evidence to suggest that this improves sports performance, at least in endurance events in which there is still a need to work at high intensities, either for sustained periods or for critical phases that determine competition success. So contrary to popular belief that dropping carbs can help athletes to excel, The research found that athletes who consumed carbohydrate-targeted diets made performance gains after a training block, where the group who consumed the LCHF diet failed to improve their race times, even though they had also become more aerobically fit. While it's clear a LCHF diet can change the muscle's fuel source, the findings reiterate that further research is required to fully understand the extent to which LCHF can impact sports performance. So that's why carbs are still king. And carbo-loading still has its place for workouts over 90 minutes 
like a big race. It really can help. A study done with elite male cyclists doubled their normal carb intake for three days. They increased their power output by 6% and their speed by 1.3 kilometers per hour in a one-hour time trial that followed a strenuous two-hour ride. Here's the general carbo-loading guide. 8 to 12 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per 24 hours for one and a half to two days before long, hard efforts like Grand Fondos or road races over 90 minutes. Glucose-containing sports drinks and gels can give you a top-up when stores start dropping off during very long or intense sessions. And the final question, I got a Stages Power Meter late last year and have been only using it indoors. Now the roads around here are looking like they might be ready for riding in the next week or two, but they still have a lot of salt residue on them. Whenever I ride at the end of winter spring, I always wash my bike immediately after just because I've seen what salt does to my car. Are power meters more susceptible to damage from salt? Will a regular wash be fine? Or should I just take the power meter off until later on in the season? I'm going to just jump back a little bit here and give you a little bit of a history on the Stages Power Meter as well as this answer. And when the Stages Power Meter was presented at the end of 2013, they attracted a lot of attention. At this time, Stages Power Meters were very cheap. And because of their simple mounting, they have quickly conquered the market. In addition, they offer a wide variety of crank arms, especially almost all variants of Shimano crank arms are available. The simple mounting and the design convenience got many customers. But the quality problems in the first generation meant that the first generation had a high failure rate. Initially, it was difficult to locate the issue. Was it short battery life, water in the area of the battery cover, or a total failure of the power meter? Basically, all problems were related to the battery cover. This battery cover was sensitive. Often the damage to the battery cover was also caused by an improper opening with a screwdriver. If the cover is damaged, the battery is not in the right position, which could lead to functional misfires. In addition, the water tightness was no longer present, which also resulted in total failure. This was Gen 1, but apparently, if you have anything later than a 2015 model, then you should have no issues with salt, because the seals on the Gen 2 power meters were changed. All of the electrical components are housed entirely in that black plastic casing, so you will run into issues with corrosion on the spindle chain rings or other components before you see problems with the power meter. But even after the change to the second generation, there are quality problems, things like frequent interruption of the connection to the bike computer, unrealistic measured values, cracks in the case, and again, water in the battery box. Anecdotally, the failure rate of the Stages power meter is around four times higher than other power meters in a comparable segment. Ouch. With a fail rate of 12%, the frequency of failures of the Stages power meter is higher than other power meters. And the failure rate as defined in this definition describes that when you have 100 Stages power meters, 12 power meters with the warranty go back because of a defect. Other power meters are around 3% or less. Now that's mostly a warning to others that don't own one. Because you own one, it's not the end of the world though. Here's your best bet. You can put electrical tape over the battery cover. It would help protect it if you were concerned about salt. The only part that would corrode would be the battery terminal and parts of the PCB. They are rated IPX7, which means that submersion to one meter is technically okay. However, as with any sensitive bike part, you have to avoid high pressure spray on it as it's possible that a jet of water might peak over the pressure seen at one meter depth. Generally, it is fine to spray gentle and then wipe it dry. 
Also, the biggest chance for failure comes after a battery replacement. Be careful with the O-ring, call stages and request replacement O-rings if you feel yours is not perfect. If you want to replace your power meter or it does get ruined, think about something like the B-Pro pedals or Quark power meter as a more reliable replacement. And that's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out semiprocycling.com and talk to you next time.